Amen. Uh, grateful uh, for our time of worship. Uh, grateful to begin just with a proclamation that God is worthy. Uh, we've been journeying through the book of Daniel as a church um, for these last few weeks, and this morning we're going to be in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, we're going to look at the, the whole passage, uh, and <clears throat> we are going to be talking about a familiar, uh, a familiar character and familiar uh, people that we've seen throughout the book of Daniel. Uh, but when we, when we look at this passage, it got me thinking about my own life, my, my own story. Uh, it was almost 19 years ago uh, that I became a Christian. Um, and <clears throat> as I wrote that down last night uh, and, and was thinking about that over the course of this week, I thought, that's the year that some of you may have been born uh, or before some of you were born, um, whereas others might be thinking, well, uh, that was, you know, well, I was getting well in, uh, to, into life at that point. But either way, um, as I look back on my life uh, and becoming a Christian 19 years ago, um, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's amazing to look back and, and think about how God brought you to a point of seeing him for who he was and your need for him. Uh, you know, I wasn't raised uh, in a Christian home. Uh, I wouldn't say that I was raised in, a, in an atheistic home, but uh, we really just didn't talk about matters of faith. Uh, it was kind of absent. Um, I didn't have any real strong intellectual arguments against Christianity. I, I wasn't bent to, to argue this or that particular point of, uh, of doctrine or belief. Um, I, I really didn't believe the Bible, but um, I really had never read the Bible. But I certainly wasn't living my life in any uh, way, shape, or form uh, in accordance with what God had said. And frankly, I think where I was at as a young teenager um, was, was a belief that I just didn't need God. I don't know if any of you can relate as you think about your story, perhaps if you're a Christian uh, before coming to faith in Christ, if you had that, that sense of not really needing God, or, or maybe, maybe you're not yet sure what you think about Christianity, and, and that question lingers in the back of your mind, do I really need this? Um, <clears throat> I didn't have everything figured out. Uh, I don't know any teenager uh, who does, um, uh, but uh, I don't know really any young adult or older adult who has everything figured out either, uh, if we're honest. But uh, I felt pretty good about where I was at and pursuing kind of what I wanted. Um, and, and when I look back, I ask myself, what kept me from God? Sure, I wasn't uh, exposed or introduced to Christianity in my home. I, I wasn't... Um, even, even kind of encouraged or pushed along to consider religion in general. Uh, it was kind of in the background uh, of my life, but never really anything that was important to me. Um, and I think for me, what kept me from God was that sense that I didn't need him, that I, that I could choose my own way, whether it was my personal pleasure or whether it was the acceptance of others. I had kind of chosen to live life uh, according to my own way. Uh, and, and so I I asked that question to myself, and I ask it to you this morning. What, what kept you from God? If you're a Christian, when you look back on your life, how was God at work to bring you to a point of seeing your need for him? What, what did God do? Who did God use, perhaps, to, to introduce you to, uh, to Christianity or maybe to, to share the gospel with you? Who, who kind of uh, brought up the first uh, conversation that you remember beginning to think about your faith? Or maybe if, if you don't yet believe What's keeping you from God today? 
there's a number of different things that keep people uh, from God, and these by no means are, are all of them, but uh, sometimes when I have conversations with people who aren't yet Christians, they revolve around some of these issues, uh, content issues related to the basic understanding of the Christian message of, of what sin is, of who Jesus is, what what uh, why Jesus had to die on the cross, what it means to have faith in him. These are, these are kind of content questions. I hope as, as you come to Treasuring Christ that, that you, you get a good understanding of what the basic message of Christianity is, what we call the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Perhaps you have more coherence issues, questions about how it all fits together and uh, intellectual problems perhaps with Christianity and how Christianity answers specific questions that are pressing on your heart or your mind, whether it be suffering or whether it be questions about the trustworthiness of the Bible or, or other, other questions that you can't resolve in your mind. I, I know for me, when I first heard the gospel, uh, I had some friends uh, that lived in my neighborhood and that went to my school, and I had some families who uh, loved me beyond what I often was uh, willing to allow them to love me. They, they fed me. They invited me to church. They were willing to pick me up. Um, and, uh, and as I began to understand the gospel before I put my trust in Christ, I had some questions about the cost. I don't know if you've been there or maybe are there, that, that, that feeling of what's this really going to cost me if I really give my life to Christ? If I put my trust in him, what's the, the cost of it to me? What fears perhaps uh, can swirl in our hearts and our minds about what it means to make a commitment to Christ? These are just some of the issues perhaps that might be on your mind if you've yet to believe or might be on the minds of those that you know who don't yet believe. Um, <clears throat> as a church, I want you to know that, that we want to be a church where you can bring your, your doubts and your questions. You see, I believe that Christianity uh, isn't a blind leap into the dark. You don't, you don't have to pretend to have everything figured out. Um, it's okay to, to ask questions where we are pressing in and don't understand. I also want to say, though, as, as I want to make clear that Christianity isn't just this blind leap into the dark, that there is something there and that we can truly know. Uh, Christianity isn't void of substance. It's not just a, a feel good about yourself, a, a, you know, positive message that creates good vibes to put into the universe. Like there's, there's coherent truth uh, in what God has said to us and has revealed to us. God is there. He has spoken and he invites us to find life in him. It's okay to be here and not be okay. You don't have to pretend. Our prayer is that you just don't stay there. Uh, so what's keeping you from God? This morning, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 4, and we're going to look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has been introduced in the book of Daniel, and if you've read the book of Daniel, you know that Nebuchadnezzar is a figure that looms large in the book of Daniel as a whole. Um, well, Daniel 4, though, is a little bit different because Daniel 4 is actually where we begin to see Nebuchadnezzar speak in his own voice. Uh, it's a, a really a firsthand account of sorts uh, of Nebuchadnezzar being humbled and coming to praise the one true and living God, the God of Daniel, the God of the Israelites, the people whom he had defeated and brought into exile in Babylon. Daniel chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 kind of serves as an introduction uh, where King Nebuchadnezzar takes the pen to hand and makes this proclamation to all peoples, nations, and languages. This is kind of 
King Nebuchadnezzar's deal. I like to call him Neb. He, he liked to make decrees that uh, cast the net wide and large for everybody to hear uh, and to, to follow. But, but this time, it's a little bit different than the last decree he made. If you were here last week or you have a chance to read Daniel chapter 3, the, the, the decree that, uh, that Neb made in, in chapter 3 was that everybody should bow down and worship his golden statue. Well, this time it's a little bit different. If you look in verse 2, uh, here's his testimony. He said, It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done. Now, notice what's different about this. It's not just what he has done, but the rest of the verse reads, What he has done for me. You see, in chapters 2 and 3, we'll look at here in just a minute, Nebuchadnezzar had recognized that the God of Israel, the God of Daniel, was a mighty and powerful God. He recognized what had been done, but now it is not only what he has done, but what he's done for me. I just want you to to think about in your life the person perhaps that is most unlikely to believe, or or perhaps you think of yourself as someone who's unlikely to ever become a Christian. Well, Daniel chapter 4 gives us a testimony of a polytheistic, rage-filled, insecure tyrant who's humbled repents of a sin and comes to believe in the one true and living God. Uh, it's a, a testimony that should encourage and challenge each and every one of us. Uh, Daniel ch- verses uh, 1 through 3, chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 kind of serve as this introduction that, that gives us a preview of what's to come at the end where he begins by saying how great, in verse 3, are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This is the, the proclamation of a, of a psalmist almost, but on the lips of King Nebuchadnezzar, saying how great God is and how great his works are and that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And as we look at Daniel's testimony, here's, here's what we're going to, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony here in Daniel 4, here's what we're going to see. If we come to God, we must come in humble repentance to receive him as Lord over our lives. If we're to come to God, we must come to him in humble repentance and receive him as Lord over our lives. Let's unpack that a little bit further. Look with me to Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 4. It'll be on the screen as well. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and enchanters and the Chaldeans, the astrologers, they all came in and I told them my dream. But they could not make it known to me, could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, the one who is named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom the spirit in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. Here's, his, here's the dream that troubled him. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great, and the tree grew and became strong, and the top reached to the heavens, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. And its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field 
found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all the flesh was fed from it. Now, this dream scared Nebuchadnezzar, but so far all I see is a, a horticultural dream, right? You know, it's just a dream of a tree, right? That's beautiful. Uh, nothing too scary so far, but, but there's something more, more disturbing that, that really strikes Nebuchadnezzar. And he says in verse 13, I saw in the visions in my head as I lay in the bed, behold, a watcher, a holy one, who came down from heaven, he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. And it switches from talking about this tree to, to talking about a person. Let him be wet with the dew of the grass of the field and let him be let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers and the decision by the word of the holy ones. To this end, to the, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream, Nebuchadnezzar says, I saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, speaking of Daniel, tell me its interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make it known to me, but you are, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. We've seen this before. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that troubles him. He brings together, as I like to say it, all the king's horses and all the king's men, his spiritual advisors, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, the magicians. He brings them all in and uh, in chapter 2, uh, there was a twist. They, he didn't tell them the dream in chapter 2. They had to tell him the dream and its interpretation. Well, now it's even easier. He's like, let me give you the dream, uh, and you tell me its interpretation. But same result. Uh, his spiritual advisors don't have any answers for him. And, and it's once again Daniel who comes in. And this king who, no doubt, in, his, in this sharing of his testimony still is this polytheistic, rage-filled, insecure tyrant. He, he knows that something's different about Daniel. What he says is that the spirit of the holy gods is within him. And it's Daniel who comes in, and, and the king is sure that Daniel can tell him the dream. And we're going to see in a minute that Daniel does just that. But when I read verses 4 through 18, here's, here's what I want uh, that I, I don't want us to miss. And it's this, that God patiently pursues us. God patiently pursues us. In Daniel 2 and Daniel 3, God, God had shown his mighty works to Nebuchadnezzar. He had shown through Daniel the ability to reveal the mysteries of the, the king's dreams. He had shown through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego his ability to deliver uh, and to, to bring them out of the fiery furnace. And at the end of those chapters, you see the king recognizes that something is different about the God of Daniel. That the God of Daniel is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, he says in chapter 2, verse 47. In, in chapter 3, verse 29, there's no other God who's able to rescue in this way, the king says. So he had all these glimpses of God's work in his life. He had all this exposure to Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. God had been gracious to warn the king. This, this dream is, is, is a, a dream that disturbs the king, but it's also a, a gift of grace from God that he would warn the king of what's to come. And when I think about what, what takes place here, I think how kind and gracious of God to pursue King Nebuchadnezzar. At his best, King Nebuchadnezzar was just curious about the God of Israel. At his worst, 
the king was rebellious and defiant against God. You remember the statue set up, idolatry, bow down and worship this God? At his, at his worst, he was rebellious and defiant against God. And here's God once more revealing himself in a dream to the king. God gives repeated opportunities for the king to see his work and, and, and puts it on display. And he puts multiple people in his lives to share, to share with him about who this true and living God is. How gracious of God to pursue a king who's rebellious and indifferent to God. I don't know about you, but I feel like on, in hindsight, when I think about my story, how kind and gracious of God to pursue me. What little interest I had in him. What little concern that my life was honoring to him in any way. Sinning and not even knowing that I was offending God. And yet, he put me in a neighborhood where Elizabeth Weaver lived down the road from me. And he put me in a school where Nate Robinson became my friend and and they started to invite me to church and they, they asked me if I knew about Christianity and if I, if I followed Jesus. And, and when I brushed them off and I ignored their request and I went to church and sat there bored out of my mind, how, how God continued to pursue me, continued to pursue me. And so one day I saw, so one day I understood my need for him. What about you? How has God pursued you? What's your, what's your story? of how God pursued you and your indifference and your rebellion against God. For perhaps you're here today and, and, and you being here is evidence of God pursuing you, that he's been chasing you down, putting people in your life, exposing you to, to truths about him. God is there and he doesn't leave us alone. And then perhaps that disturbs you or haunts you, but what, what a gift of grace it is that God pursues us even in our indifference and our rebellion. And, and, and look at how God pursues Nebuchadnezzar, even though Nebuchadnezzar time and time again goes back to empty, empty wells. He goes to his spiritual advisors once again, and they don't have any answers. The, the religion of his day, the prevailing religious sentiment of his day had no answers for what he was looking for. And God doesn't chastise him or, or Daniel doesn't berate him saying, Are you, oh, now you come to me again. No, none of that. God keeps on sending Daniel, and Daniel keeps on faithfully showing the king what God has to say. What a gift that God puts people in our lives and, and pursues us. He's there, and he doesn't leave us alone, and praise God for his patience. We see God patiently pursuing the king just as he patiently pursues us. But, but as we move into the interpretation of the dream, here's, here's what I, I want us to see. Not only does God patiently pursue us, but God demands that we come to him on his terms and not our own terms. Now listen, I, I think if, if you look throughout the scriptures at who God is, you will time and time again be drawn to God because he's full of steadfast love, abundant in grace and mercy. You can't, you can't help but look at who God is and particularly as revealed in Jesus and say, I want to know more about him. But here's the thing about Jesus. As we are drawn to him, we also quickly get our toes stepped on by him because we realize that he says, you can't come to me on your own terms. You must come to me on my terms. See, the, the dream that God sends Nebuchadnezzar, as I mentioned earlier, is a, is a warning of judgment. And it's a warning of judgment coupled with an offer of grace. See, God is holy. We, we, can't, we can't forget this reality as we talk about God's patient pursuit of us. God doesn't change who he is in his character as he pursues us. 
God is holy and cannot oblige our rejection of him with indifference. Oh, he's patient, friends. But he will not overlook our rebellion and our rejection against him. He's not, not content just to let us dabble with a little God here and there. God is worthy of our worship. He, he demands that we come to him on his terms. He says to the king and to us today that you cannot come to me on the basis of your achievements, on the basis of your status. You can't come to me and find me in the religious thinking that permeates your day. God says you can't use me to get what you want. You just can't take a little bit of God and a little bit of religion just to, to kind of get things your way. He says you must come on my terms. And, and what are those terms? Let's look at verses 19 through 27. Daniel responds, whose name was Belteshazzar, um, <clears throat> who was dismayed for a while, though his thoughts were alarmed in him. And the king answered him and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered him and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Daniel hesitates here. It's kind of a weighty thing. And he he goes on to say, the tree you saw, which grew and became strong, he said, that's you. It reached into the heavens, and in verses 20 and 21, its leaves are beautiful, fruit abundant, all of these things. This is you, king, he says in verse 22. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has shown, has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And it's true. The, the Babylonian kingdom was, was vast and powerful. And he says, because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and, and, and bind it up and, and, and let, it, him, let his portion be with the dew of heaven and his portion be with the beast of the field till seven periods pass over it. He says in verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king. The decree is from the most high, which has come upon my lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling place shall be with the beast of the field. You shall, not be, made, you shall be made to eat the the." Eat with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You will be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And as it was commanded to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed <clears throat> for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. God says, you can only come to me on my terms. This message, both of judgment and an offer of grace, is what's being held out here in this passage. And, and here's, the, here's the first thing that God defines as his terms. We must humble ourselves before God. Humble yourself before God. Pride, C.S. Lewis said, is, is the one vice which no man in the world is free. If you, if you haven't read Mere Christianity, uh, about 100 pages or so in, he talks about pride, and I wish I could quote it all, but, but just a few snippets. Uh, Lewis said that pride, there is no fault that makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. If we are going to come to God, we must humble ourselves. Pride cannot coexist with a, with a humble heart that exalts and praises God. 
And we could look at all throughout the scriptures, uh, but, but in Proverbs, a book that gives us wisdom to live by, uh, multiple times talks about pride. Proverbs 16, verse 18 said, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. This is the wisdom of God that we would humble ourselves before him. And God exposes the pride in the king's uh, through the king's dream. And he, he reveals that, that it's Nebuchadnezzar who had grown up and become strong, that, that he had conquered and done all these things. And, and now he's going to be cut down. This is what disturbs the king, that he's going to lose his power and his significance and his prestige. And ultimately what, what God does here is he, he says he's going to drive King Nebuchadnezzar to be temporarily mentally unstable. There's actually a, a medical terminology for this called boanthropy. Um, I'm not a medical person at all, but I did, uh, I did Google this. You can Google it too. Um, it's a legitimate thing that a person can, in their mind, think of themselves as an animal. Uh, and it doesn't say that he became an animal, but he was acting like one, driven out from the palace into the fields, uh, gone mad for seven times. It doesn't say that it's days or months or, or years, uh, but seven periods of time it says that this takes place. Why does God do this? It's some, somewhat of a strange thing, right? Unusual, to say the least, right? Um, I don't know if you've ever seen anyone doing this. Uh, I think I've seen kids play like this, but I don't think that it's the same thing, right? Um, what's happening here? I think God reveals in, in perhaps the most dramatic of way, ways what pride does to us. You see, pride's an attitude within us, but pride does something to us. According to God, pride makes us subhuman. It goes against God's very design for us. If I could say it this way, I heard another pastor say it. I wish I was smart enough to come up with it. We were made for childlike dependence on God. But instead, pride is godlike dependence on self. You see, God designed us for, for childlike dependence upon him. But, but in pride, the, the first sin of Adam and Eve was a godlike dependence on self that they knew what was right what was pleasing, and what was good. And they chose it for themselves. And ever since, we've been choosing for ourselves what we think is right and God-like dependence on ourselves. Jesus said, if you come to me, you must turn and become like a children in Matthew 18, verse 4, or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Listen to this. Whoever humbles himself like a child, this is the one who enters the kingdom of heaven. And it goes against everything within us in our, in our self-made, pioneering spirit of America that we cannot make our own way to God, that we are unable to, to make God impressed with us, that we must humble ourselves like a child, childlike dependence on God rather than Godlike dependence on ourselves. What does this look like? Look down at verse 28. You see, the, the interpretation is given here in this first part. And then in, in verse 28, it says that a year passes. About 12 min, months go by from the time of this interpretation to what's taking place. And, and you can only imagine, perhaps the king, hearing the warning of the dream and its interpretation, tried to change some things in his life. Uh, but eventually, uh, his pride creeps back in. And it says at the end of the 12 months in verse 29, he was walking on the roof in the royal palace. And the king uh, king answered and said to himself, I guess talking to himself, when you're this powerful, you just think these things to yourself. It's not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. 
While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom, of heaven, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. And immediately he's driven out of the palace and is in the field temporarily, truly insane. Look at what the king said. His boast was this. This was built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, by me and for me. I did this, and it's all about me. Now, <clears throat> I'm not much of a builder. I'm, I, I'm not much of a fixer up of anything. I think one time I fixed my toilet uh, in my house, like the, the thing was broken inside the, the tank, um, which is not a glorious thing to do. But when I was finished, I was like, look. I brought my family in, you know, we had a thing. Look at what I have done. This is beautiful. Uh, just think of the water bill that we're, we're saving, right? Like, I don't know if you've ever built anything or done anything, and you think, yes, this is it. This doesn't happen to me very often, as I'm telling you about a toilet that I fixed once. But the king looks at his city and says, this is by me and for me. It's all about me. You see, it's particularly a struggle of those who are powerful and accomplished to think this way, that they have no need for God, that they have accomplished it, and it's about them and their accomplishment. I, I dare say that in highly academic, success-driven environments like Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan, this is a particular temptation. I did it. Look what I've accomplished. But, but I also want to be aware, perhaps if you're more like me, I'm not the one who uh, accomplishes much. You might think to yourself, well, I'm, I don't have a problem with pride because I don't walk in a room and think, it's all about me, right? You're, you might be the person that walks in the room and you're trying to hide in a corner hoping nobody notices you except the one or two people that you truly care about. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was boastful. Boastful Nebuchadnezzar. You might be more woe is me Nancy, right? Like you may not be boastful Nebuchadnezzar, but woe is me Nancy thinking I'm a loser. I'm too messed up. God, God can't fix me. I've gone too far. God can't find me. You see, we can offend God by thinking that we don't need him just as well by thinking that he is unable to reach us. We must humble ourselves. No matter how high we've reached or how low we've gotten, we must humble ourselves before God. Even if we feel we've been brought low before others, we're not low enough before God because he is holier than any of us. Perfect and true in all of his ways, and he calls us to humble ourselves. And once more, C.S. Lewis said, said it this way and hit the nail on the head. A proud person is always looking down on things and people, perhaps even themselves. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see what's above you. Humble yourself before God if you're to see him for who he is. If you come to him, we must come recognizing our moral and our spiritual inadequacy, recognizing his patient and gracious pursuit of us. If you're, if you're a believer, let this just strengthen and encourage you and, and remind you that this is a daily need for us. And if you're considering Christianity Know that the way in is not by lifting yourself up, but by laying yourself down. Humble yourself before God, but also repent of your sin. It's striking to see what, Neb what Daniel does before Nebuchadnezzar. You know, I, I think that the, the king's spiritual advisors couldn't interpret his dream, not because they were unable to tell him what they thought it meant, 
there was a, a very uh, specific formula and resources that they had back in the day to interpret dreams. It was, it was just kind of, you know, you just put it in and out comes, you know, your interpretation for the dream. I, I think what happened was they were unwilling to tell the king, unwilling to tell him what the dream meant. Would you want to be the one to tell the king what's coming, that he's going to be chopped down? His kingdom's going to be stripped away from him. His glory will be lost. I think Daniel shows us what, what boldness uh, it takes to approach the king. And also, I, just as a side note here, when, we, when we're talking about what it means to um, approach God and come to him, but I just encourage you, if you're a believer and you're, you're talking to somebody about your faith, look, look at back at verse 19 and verse 20. It says that... Um, that when Daniel heard the dream, he was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. He, he didn't want to share with the king. No doubt, perhaps like the spiritual advisors, he might have had that moment of fear of what it would mean for his life. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, last time that uh, the dream couldn't be interpreted, he, he told the, the spiritual advisors that he would uh, tear them from limb to limb and destroy their homes. But I think what you really see here is, is Daniel having compassion on King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel came into exile as a youth. He's probably in his middle years here. In, in chapter 5, we'll see him towards the end of his life. He's lived long enough. He's seen King Nebuchadnezzar. I think he's burdened for him. He has compassion on him. We have a message that is gloriously good news. But you know, to really hear the good news, you also have to bring with it the bad news. The bad news that we, we must humble ourselves before God and repent of our sin. But if we are people that bear the bad news of our sin and the good news of the gospel, we must be people who bear it with compassion and a burden for those with whom we share. There's no boasting in the message of judgment and grace. There's no taking delight in sharing the truth of our sin we must be burdened and broken for those apart from God. And Daniel shows us both that compassion as well as that boldness. In verse 27, he goes beyond just telling the king what the dream means. He admonishes the king. Look what he says. He says in verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your times. Break off your sins. Turn away from your sin in your own way. Practice righteousness. See, this, is, this isn't saying that the king can save himself or deliver himself through his righteous deeds, but, but this is a, a reorientation of his heart to, to turn from his own way and to trust in God. Repentance and faith always go hand in hand. When, when, you, when, when the gospel calls us to, to turn away from our sins, we're not turning to ourselves to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and try to live a better life. We're, we're turning and throwing ourselves into the arms of God whose love and whose grace and mercy is abundant to meet us in our need to forgive us and restore us. The only way we can truly practice righteousness and do justice is if we humble ourselves before God. I love the... Daniel calls out his sin and he shows him to practice righteousness means that you, you understand your need for God and you understand how you sin against others. Turn away from your own way, from trusting in yourself and, and turn to God. Turn from God-like dependence on yourself to childlike dependence on God. 
Now, the message of repentance has been known to offend people from time to time. I wish I could apologize, but I can't because these are God's terms. Repent of your sin is the message he gives to us. But here's the good news about repentance. Repentance is the pathway to life. Repentance is the pathway to joy. Repentance is the pathway to restoration. It's through the valley of humiliation the king must go to to get to the height of praise and exalting in God. If we are to enjoy God as he intends us for, for us to enjoy him, we must first see ourselves in our need before him. If you sense that God is right, that your way may not be right after all, if you feel the, the guilt of sin pressing in on you, count that as a gift of God pursuing you, calling you to turn from your own way to turn to him. It's a beckoning to repentance. An invitation into life is what God is offering us. When we repent, we're not missing out on something and anticipating that God's gonna beat us over the head with more guilt and shame. Repentance is is God relenting and bestowing upon his, his abundant grace and mercy. We must come to him on his terms, humble ourselves before him, repent of our sin and embrace him as Lord. The, the, the overarching message that God wants to get out in chapter four is that he alone is the most high God who rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills, he says in verse 17. Just look at the number of times it makes this point in Daniel chapter four, verse 17, till the end, to this end, that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. Verse 25, till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Catching on, verse 26, that you may know that heaven rules. Verse 32, until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. And in verse 35, the king says, oh, God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. To to embrace him as Lord is to recognize him as sovereign and to to give in to him being in control. That's the, the call of God is to embrace him as Lord. Humble repentance that embraces him as Lord. It means that we recognize that he's in control and we are not. That he's sovereign over all, including our life. We aren't the captain of our own soul. He shatters the illusion of self-sovereignty. And he says, let me rule. Let me call the shots. And that perhaps is our most pressing problem. Our, our pride that makes us think that we are in control, that we can call the shots, that we know better. Embrace him as Lord. That's the invitation of Daniel 4, to embrace him as Lord in humble repentance. I began by asking you, what's keeping you from God? Daniel was written nearly 600 years before the time of Christ. But the message of humble repentance and embracing God as Lord reminds us of what we find throughout the New Testament. It's, it's what we see in Jesus, and, and perhaps in, in uh, the most fitting of ways in Philippians 2, we see the God who demands humble repentance actually humbles himself on our behalf. He took on flesh, Philippians 2, 8 says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's through the pathway of humiliation, it says that in verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Not just to those who feel like it, but one day in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the reality, according to Philippians 2, is that every person will bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. We either do it willingly now, or we do it on that final day as we face God and his judgment. I don't know what your questions have been up to this point of what's kept you from God. But here's the invitation. Come to him in humble repentance and embrace him as Lord. What's keeping you? From him. What would hold you back from trusting in this good and gracious God who patiently pursues us, who calls us to turn from looking at ourselves, to look above, to find him, waiting to forgive us when we repent and, and giving us all of his grace and mercy as we embrace him as Lord. And you know, the Christian life, believer, this isn't just the, the way we get in to a relationship with God. The, the whole of the Christian life is humble repentance and returning again and again to the truth that God is Lord over our lives. Do you know that that's the, that's the pattern of the Christian life? Humble repentance and returning again and again to him as Lord over our lives. Look, the, the theme that we've been, we've been pressing into in Daniel 4 is that we are in exile. And if you're gonna make it in exile, you've gotta know that you can't do it by God-like dependence on yourself. But it's got to be childlike dependence on him. That's what, that's what we need. We, we won't make it by getting discouraged and sulking. We, we won't make it by taking a posture of pride and being grateful that we're not like those sinners. That won't do. That's not the heart of God. We need humble repentance, humility to see ourselves rightly before God. Repentance to keep short accounts with God, to not get comfortable with our sin. Oh, how easy it is to, to get comfortable with our sin, to excuse it just a little bit. Before long, we find ourselves hiding it. Humble repentance is the mark of the Christian life. Jai Packer said, repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. And our knowledge grows at these three points. So our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. All of life for the Christian is repentance. When you see more and more of your sin, and you know what it means to give more and more of yourself to a God who's bigger and better than you have ever imagined, that you continually come to know more and more of who he is, repenting from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. This is why the Christian life is repentance, because we continually grow in these ways. We continually grow in our understanding of our need for God, of our own tendencies of rebellion and, and hard-heartedness and, and pride. I, I want us to be a church, not, not marked by thinking that, that we're better than anyone around us, not, not marked by, by assuming that we've got it figured out, but a people who are marked by, by gospel truth, that we are in need of God and God is sufficient to meet us where we're at, a place where it's okay to not be okay, where it's a safe environment to work through those questions and doubt and, and by, a, by a, a place where we, we continually, continually come back to the truth of who God is and what he calls us to do. 
That's a place where anybody can grow. It's where we speak the gospel in an environment that's safe, giving one another time to work through those things so that we can see God for who he is and what he's done for us. That's the kind of church I want to be. That's the kind of church that I, I want to call us to pursue becoming, marked by these truths of humbling ourselves before God, of repenting of our sin and embracing him as Lord. Let's close by, by looking at the end of Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 37. It says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised him and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will. Among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. But notice the, the final refrain. It's not the greatness of King Nebuchadnezzar, but it's praise and honor to the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. As our band comes, I want you to see at the close of Daniel 4 that the opposite of pride is actually not merely humility. The opposite of pride is praise. The opposite of pride is praise. When we praise God, we, we turn our eyes from ourselves and we fix them on God. We fix them on a God who is sovereign over us and full of grace to prideful sinners like you and me. That's the good news of the gospel, that God is full of grace to prideful sinners like you and me because Jesus humbled himself on our behalf. And in his humility, he took on flesh and he went to the cross to die the death that we deserve to die. In our place and for our sin, condemned he stood, but then he rose from the dead, victorious over the grave. And Christian, listen, this this is where life is found. This is our continual uh, well of truth that we run to again and again that strengthens us to stand faithful in exile, that, that reminds us of the message that we bear witness to and stands as an invitation to everyone to come. If God will loosen your tongue to praise him, then it's evidence that your heart has moved from God-like dependence on yourself to childlike dependence on him. What's keeping you from God today? Let's pray.